The following presentation was recorded at the Buddhist Society of Victoria, Malvern East, Australia. Please visit our website at bsv.net.au. So, welcome to the Buddha Loka Centre, the Buddhist Society of Victoria. This Monday night meditation, so lovely to see people come to meditate together. This is a wonderful opportunity and very supportive for our practice. And just to introduce myself, for those who uh, don't know who I am, I sometimes don't either, so <laughs> that's all right. I'm Ajahn Nisarano, and I'm the uh, senior monk at Newbury Buddhist Monastery, which is a monastery that's part of the Buddhist Society of Victoria. So that's who I am. And I have been a monk for, a uh, fully ordained monk for 25 years, and for and I ordained with Ajahn Brahm in Western Australia. I don't know if you've heard of Ajahn Brahm. Yeah, most many people have. I'm always surprised when I come across people who haven't heard of him. <laughs> but um, uh, so I ordained with him, and I spent 13 and a half years in Sri Lanka, uh, and eight of those years living in a cave in the forest on the side of a mountain. So it was very nice, and going down just after six o'clock in the morning to, uh, to uh, on the arms round for the food and then coming back to the, uh, the cave uh, for the rest of the day. So it was lovely, very, very nice, very special, very beautiful too. So that that's, uh, gives you an idea of who I am and what I've done. <laughs> and I was getting a bit too old for the cave, though I must admit going up and down the mountain was <laughs> challenged. So, and of course this evening it's the usual format that we have the introduction followed by a guided meditation for 45 minutes and then an opportunity for comments, questions or complaints. So I don't get very many complaints. That's always very interesting. And are there any people here who are new to meditation? Haven't meditated before? You haven't, all right. We'll just just see if you can follow what I'm I'm going to teach because uh, it may be a bit advanced, but the but the principle is still the same actually. So on Saturday, last Saturday, we had a peaceful meditation day here at uh, the Buddhist Society, and it was focused on bringing joy to our practice, and this is a very important. Thing to be able to do because if we can bring joy to whatever we're doing if we can bring happiness to whatever we're doing then we will enjoy doing it then we'll do more of it then we'll go deeper and of course this is what happens with the mind as well and with the meditation object if we can have bring up this joy we can give it to the meditation object it can become more attractive we can stay with it because often people say, oh, you know, especially the breath, oh, it's so boring, <laughs> it's so dull. But we have to do a bit of interior decorating by giving this joy that we bring up to the breath. So it gives, it gives a, uh, makes it attractive, makes it beautiful. And then, as I mentioned very often, once we have, we can stay with the breath because it's attractive, because it's beautiful, then the natural process or the automatic process the Buddha talks about of this joy becoming um, this really intense rapture and then this tranquility of the body 
where the body can disappear and then this happiness that comes up and then from the happy mind the mind comes together this is one pointedness when there is no there's the experience of oneness there is no observer and the observed it's just the experience and this is the very very deep meditations which will transform a person's way of looking at the world, to say the least. So this joy is, in fact, the secret ingredient for meditation and a happy life. If we don't have joy in life, too, it becomes very depressing and grey. So, and I mentioned on Saturday this lovely verse from the Buddha's uh, teachings. This is a collection of verses called the Dhammapada. And uh, it translates as, Ah, so happy, happily we live. We who have no attachments, or we who have nothing, we shall feast on joy, as do the radiant gods, the radiant celestial beings. So this, evidently this was an occasion when the Buddha went to a village and for arms round and got nothing. Can you imagine? <laughs> I find that difficult to believe that could happen. And then he evidently said this verse, that he would feed on joy. And this is actually um, an energy food, a superfood for the mind, this joy. It's one of the uh, things that really can um, give the mind energy and zest. So, and I often say it's like health food and the happiness or the pleasure we get from the senses, seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting and touching, though enjoyable, is like junk food. <laughs> it's a bit of a hit. But the joy, and this, this joy is an inner quality that we're developing. And this is what we're looking for, inner happiness. And, uh, of course, I know sometimes people talk about uh, the Buddha's teachings being pessimistic. You know, oh, they're all about suffering, you know. <laughs> all about suffering. But of course, it's more, uh, in fact, focused on the ending of suffering. And of course, what is the ending of suffering? Happiness. And this is, of course, what the Buddha is focusing on. And actually, the whole path is leading in that direction. And we, de we incline, we deliberately cultivate, this is the word bhavana, actually, we deliberately cultivate or develop these positive states, joyful states in the mind. And uh, there's so many of them that we can um, develop. And when we do that, when we do develop positive qualities and maintain them, it means that we avoid and we let go, we can let go of negative qualities. In fact, usually if we've got positive qualities in the mind, it doesn't give that much opportunity to negative qualities. So I say, developing this uh, positive qualities like joy is the shortcut. <laughs> it's the shortcut. And of course, as I mentioned, there are many types of um, joyful meditations that the, the Buddha taught and that, that bring happiness, this really nourishing inner, uh, inner happiness. And of course, metta, this loving-kindness meditation, compassion meditation, joy with others' success and their good or their good qualities, um, and upeka, this equanimity that accepts things as they are, but with a, a very kind feeling behind a warm feeling and so there are many other 
um, positive emotions that uh, we can uh, develop, we can cultivate. But the ones that I was focusing on are called the anusatis. And uh, these are uh, six, there are at least six, but sometimes there is a set of ten um, recollections that the Buddha recommended for bringing up happiness in the mind. And they are the recollections of the Buddha, the Dhamma and the Sangha, and the recollections of generosity, Chaganusati, and the recollection of ethical behaviour, and the recollection of the devas. So these, these are all ways that the, the Buddha encouraged us to develop, to bring up this joy, to support the meditation practice. So the mind can come together, become one-pointed, become powerful, become a very clear and become very pure, free of the negative qualities of the mind. And then, so this is this evening, I, I, on Saturday, I focused on the Buddha and the Dhamma. So I'm up to <laughs> the Sangha. And uh, I don't know if, do you know about the Sangha? Have you heard of Sangha? Oh dear, this is going to be interesting. <laughs> you know, the Buddha, the Buddha is, of course, you know, the founder of Buddhism. Uh, some people say the Buddha wasn't a Buddhist. <laughs> That's an interesting idea. But anyway, he created this Buddhism. And the Dhamma is his teachings, obviously. And the Sangha is the uh, ordained monks and nuns uh, that continued that teaching. We have in Buddhism uh, four, four aspects of the Buddhist community. The ordained, fully ordained monks and nuns. And we have the laymen and laywomen. So we have, that's the full community. And... Of course, the lay community, where do the Sangha come from? The men and the women, the lay, lay men and the lay women. So that's, that's where it comes from. So, uh, so this is what the recollection of the, uh, the Sangha is about, to bring up inspiration about the Sangha itself, or I, I think we can quite easily focus on individual Sangha members as well, um, sometimes we call them spiritual friends, kalyanamitas. And we can do it with regardless of whether they're alive or not, um, and whether we've met them or not. Because sometimes we can be inspired by, or I'm very inspired by the reading the teachings of the Buddha, reading the life of the Buddha, reading the lives of the great disciples of the Buddha. Some of them are incredible, <laughs> really. And we also have the poems of the Buddha. They're very inspiring. We have the um, enlightened, the poems of the enlightened monks and the poems of the enlightened nuns. And they're really, some of them really fantastic poems. So these, so it need not be someone we've met. It may be somebody we've met, as it were, through the books, through the videos, uh, through talks. Um, and so it, it, we, can, uh, we can connect with the Sangha in that way or with a particular Sangha member. So I'll just read out what the Buddha said about how we recollect the Sangha. So this is a, a very useful and what the purpose of that is. That's quite, 
And this is from the collection of the Buddha's teachings that is arranged by numbers. And it's from the chapter on the ten. So everything in that book, that chapter, is has ten things in it. And this is uh, must have ten in here, actually. Must, yeah. And it starts, and this is what the Buddha says, again, Mahanama. And this is his cousin. He's the cousin of the Buddha. Many of the Buddha's family members ordained. He seemed to have quite a few cousins. <laughs> in fact, his personal assistant, Venerable Ananda, was his cousin too. And there's quite a few cousins. So um, it, this is what the, the Buddha says. Again, Mahanama, a noble disciple, recollects the Sangha thus. The Sangha of the Blessed One's disciples is practicing the good way, is practicing the straight way, is practicing the true way, is practicing the proper way. That is, the four pairs of persons, the eight types of individuals. This Sangha of the Blessed One's disciples is worthy of gifts, worthy of hospitality, worthy of offerings, worthy of reverential salutation. It's a bit formal, that one. I think worthy of respect is probably enough. Uh, The unsurpassed field of merit for the world. This is probably going in at the deep end, I think. (laughs) Nevertheless. So just to uh, go through that, practicing the good way. And what do you think practicing the good way is? It really is practicing according to what is wholesome, practicing things that are wholesome, coming from wholesomeness, that bring happiness. So the good way is someone who is practicing an ethical behavior and practicing um, all these developing good qualities in the mind, like generosity, kindness, uh, compassion. And practicing the straight way, this is an interesting term, uju, <laughs> and it uh, really means the direct path to nibbana, the direct path to the ending of suffering, ending of unsatisfactoriness. That's what the Buddha's teaching is about. I think he's the only teacher that taught the complete ending of suffering. So this is wonderful. And it's practicing the true way, and uh, this is uh, sometimes it's uh, translated or the methodical way, or using a method. And this is a way that brings understanding of the truth, satcha. This is this is what the path is aimed at, because we're practicing to see the truth. And of course, the truth, the big truths in Buddhism are the four noble truths, and this is the nature of reality we're really seeing. So it's, uh, and also practicing the proper way, samichi, patipanno. This is practicing in a way that's appropriate to lead to uh, enlightenment, practicing in a way that's suitable. So uh, this is very important for the way we practice, to realize the end of suffering. And nibbana, so. We have to find the suitable way. So, and what is it? uh, What is um, the four pairs of persons, the eight types of persons? Four pairs of persons, the eight types of individuals. Anybody know? Sounds a bit mysterious, doesn't it? You probably think, what is this? 
No, no, it's a bit more specific than that. And the four, four types of per, the four pairs of persons are the four stages of enlightenment. So, the first stage is the stream entry. Second stage is once returner. Third stage is non-returner to this world, and the fourth stage, fully enlightened. Eight pairs, eight uh, the eight individuals is the four path times two. The person who's on the path to becoming uh, the first, to realizing the first stage of enlightenment, and the person who has, and the second, and for the second stage uh, of enlightenment, this is the uh, non-return, the the once returner. Then that's the path to it, and the person who has realized it, and the non-returner, the path to it, and the person who's realized it and the person is on the path to become fully enlightened, and the person has become fully enlightened. That way we get eight, eight types. And there can be a bit of a gap. There can be a gap between entering the path on the way to that realization and then realizing it. And this, uh, the Buddha continues then. He says, when a noble disciple recollects the Sangha, on that occasion, their mind is not obsessed by lust, hatred, or delusion. On that occasion, their mind is simply straight, based on the Sangha. And a noble disciple whose mind is straight gains inspiration in the meaning, gains inspiration in the Dhamma, the teachings of the Buddha, gains joy connected with the Dhamma, and when one is joyful, rapture arises. And for one with a rapturous mind, the body becomes tranquil. One tranquil in body feels happiness. And for one feeling happiness, the mind becomes one-pointed. This is called a disciple who dwells in balance amid an unbalanced population who dwells unafflicted amid an afflicted population, as one who has entered the stream of the Dhamma, one who has developed the recollection of the Sangha. So there we are. That's the, the purpose of this recollection, is to bring up this, this inspiration in the meaning and inspiration in the Dhamma, and the joy that's connected with it. So it's a, a mixture of understanding, wisdom, understanding the, the importance of, of the Sangha and also the, the Dhamma that they're teaching and to bring up this emotion of joy. And that joy then gives rise to these, this um, rapture, this tranquility, and then this happiness, then then the one-pointedness, the mind coming together. So this is uh, very, uh, this is what it's aiming at, really, to really rev up the energy in the mind. This is joy. <laughs> so, and uh, as I'm aware, that mentions that, uh, the, that uh, the beginning where it mentions that they're not obsessed by lust, hatred, and delusion. So this is the negative qualities of the mind go down when there is inspiration in the mind, when they're focusing on recollecting the sangha, and it becomes the mind becomes straight. So it, in other words, it's not bent by these things like desire, 
and uh, ill will or hatred and delusion, basically not biased by or bent by liking and disliking. That's, uh, that's the usual thing that distorts the mind. And then, so this straight is just free of the not distorted due to the defilements, the unwholesome qualities in the mind. We particularly think of the five hindrances and uh, the unbalanced population. And this is most people in the world we are being tortured by our negative qualities. That's what makes life very, very difficult for us. And uh, always going up and down. So this is the unbalanced aspect of it. The moods, there's no stability in the mind. You know, if it's uh, when, we, uh, when we see things we like, when we hear, smell, taste, touch, and think about things we like, we can get very happy and then we can also get go the other way, become very depressed when we see things we don't like or hear or smell or taste. So this is, um, of course, not understanding the Dhamma, not seeing things as they truly are. And the same with the afflicted population. Afflicted is quite a... It means like sick, like we're sick. And so somebody who, um, who uh, has got this... Uh, recollection of the Dhamma, who's become a, a, a noble disciple, is not, they're no longer sick. Because often we talk about the Buddha's teaching being like a medicine for sickness. That we have a sickness, and then the Buddha has diagnosed the cause, which is usually always wanting. <laughs> wanting is the cause. And then that uh, the remedy for it, letting go of this wanting completely. And it was also given a course of treatment, the Noble Eightfold Path. So that's pretty, it's a wonderful medicine. So, and when they mention at the end, enter the stream, then it's a, at least the stream is the stream of Dhamma. This is somebody that's become enlightened, at least the first stage of enlightenment, or above, actually. So... And uh, so that's entering, we say entering the stream. And we call the first stage of enlightenment stream entry. Isn't that interesting? Because you often think of water, don't you, like a stream, but it's a stream going in a direction towards enlightenment, <laughs> like, a, like a, a conveyor belt almost. So the important thing with recollecting the Sangha is that we can recollect it in two ways. We can re recollect the Sangha as a whole, and that the fact that it's existed for over 2,500 years, it must be one of the oldest groups that's, that's continued, actually. And uh, not only... Uh, so this is quite extraordinary to have, a, you know, something that's continued for that long. I mean, the teachings have too. And the reason the teachings have continued, and we can reflect like this, that... The Sanghas actually preserved the teachings. They've, they have uh, not only preserved it, they've taught the teachings and hopefully been an example, <laughs> example of the teachings because that's the biggest teaching, actually. When somebody meets uh, uh, um, a teacher, a monk or a nun, who has got uh, very obvious qualities or qualities we can connect with, like being very peaceful, very wise, very kind, all these sorts of qualities. So this is 
something that can give rise to a lot of uh, uh, inspiration or joy, just thinking, yeah. And not only that, not this group, this Sangha, these monks and these nuns have produced the most enlightened beings in the history of the world. You know, this is what, this is what the Sangha does. And the Sangha, the Buddha called it the most fertile ground for a being to become enlightened, to become awakened. Why is that? Because they have far less duties, <laughs> far less things that they have to look after and uh, far less attachments because of that. So it's a life that's aimed at, you know, the, um, the practitioner developing enlightenment, uh, going towards enlightenment. It's much, much more difficult as a lay person, as a layman and a lay woman. I think most of you will recognize that in your life. There's a lot we have to look after if we're, um, if we're a lay person a lay, or a lay, uh, yeah, a lay person. Or we can, and uh, we'll start soon actually, can recollect an individual Sangha member because, of course, you know, this is often a connection uh, with the Sangha, will be a particular Sangha member. And uh, I, for instance, I would, I would for myself, Anjan Brahm would be my teacher, and some of my other teachers, Ayakima, and uh, also Asaidu uh, Utejaniya, um, another teacher, Burmese monk, actually. So they are what uh, Sangha members are spiritual friends for us. This is what we call Kalyana Mittas. And it's very important because when we make a connection to a particular teacher, it can be very useful for us to inspire us, to, to guide us in the path, not only of meditation, but the whole path for, you know, uh, dana, for giving, for keeping moral precepts, uh, ethical, uh, ethical conduct. So this is very important. And the Buddha himself said that the, a spiritual friend is not half the whole the spiritual life, it's the whole of the spiritual life. Because somebody that has a spiritual friend, he said, is, can be expected to develop the Noble Eightfold Path uh, and leading to liberation. And, of course, who was the best uh, spiritual friend? The Buddha! <laughs> Because he says, actually, it's very lovely. He says that uh, um, he says that it, this is because because being subject to birth are freed from birth. Being subject to aging are freed from aging. Being subject to death are freed from death. Being subject to sorrow, and lamentation, pain, despair, uh, and uh, displeasure and despair are freed from them. So this is why he's the, the best Kalyanamitta, because he taught the path to that. So this is what a spiritual friend is about, and they can be a great inspiration for us and a guide for us as well, and has to be an example too, because we really live, learn from lived examples, not so much all the words. So, so we can, um, and of course, we can do a meditation about this, uh, the Sangha meditating. And of course the emotions that can come up, 
when we contemplate the Sangha can be things like gratitude or thanks, that there is a group of people that have dedicated their lives to spiritual practice and have been supported to to do that. That's what I, I was always impressed with that. I thought, wow, this is incredible. When I became a monk, I thought, because the lay community supports us to do, to develop our spiritual practice. And I think, you know, we spend a lot on um, uh, uh, investigating outer space, but this really investigating inner space and being supported to do it is fantastic. Just amazing. Because this is where the world can change, isn't it? Inside. We can change the way we look at the world, how we understand the world from here. So this is a very important area of investigation. Mostly human beings are going out, 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 hardly ever looking in, in, in. (laughs) This is where it all happens. And of course, the feelings that can come up, and these are the feelings that lead to the mind coming together, can be thanks, joy, like I'm focusing on today, respect, faith, and refuge, because the Sangha, Buddha, Dhamma, and Sangha, we call them refuges in uh, the Buddha's teaching. So something that can really give us a sense of stability, of, of a place that we are, of something that's so important to us, something that, that can give us uh, a focus in our lives. And inspiration, peace, safety, and security. So lots of... A, Um, different emotions can come up. So let's test drive it (laughs) and see how we go. So this is the recollection of the Sangha. So first of all, do people need a stretch? No? Okay. All right, we can just find a comfy posture. I think if your posture isn't comfortable already, And this will be for about, I think it's about 40 minutes now. And we can close the eyes. And come into the present moment. You can let go of the past, what happened even a moment ago and let go of the future, what will happen, may happen. And we can, we can reflect. We've got nothing to do for this time, and there's nowhere we have to go for this time. And we can just be here now. And we can get in contact with the body and just see if it needs any adjusting. If the um, head feels balanced over the shoulders, the shoulders feel balanced over the hips. And the hands are comfortable on the lap or on the knees. And the legs and feet comfortable can move the shoulders just to relax them or let go of some tension.
Now we can mentally relax the body, giving the body a mental massage, like having invisible hands soothing and massaging the body from the top of the head to the tips of the toes. So we can bring to mind the head and the face and bring this warm, relaxing, soothing attention to the head and the face, all around the head and around the eyes, around the mouth, the face. Soothing and relaxing the head and the face. And we can move the attention to the neck all around it and soothe and relax, give the neck this mental massage with warmth and kindness. And we can bring to mind the shoulders starting at the neck, the right shoulder, starting at the neck and moving our attention along the right shoulder, really soothing it, allowing any tension, any stiffness to relax with a mental massage, these invisible hands relaxing the right shoulder Now we can bring to mind the right arm, right down to the fingertips and all around the right arm and move the attention down the arm, soothing it, relaxing it with this warmth, kindness. Now bringing to mind the left shoulder, starting at the neck, 
and moving our attention along the left shoulder, giving the left shoulder this mental massage, soothing it, relaxing it. And now bringing to mind the left arm all, and moving the attention down the left arm, all around it, right down to the fingers, soothing it, relaxing it, giving this warm attention to the left arm. And bringing to mind the back, starting below the shoulders and moving our attention down the back, soothing the back with this warm healing attention, gentle attention, giving the back a mental massage. And now bringing to mind the front of the body, starting just below the shoulders and moving our attention down the front of the body with this warm, kind, relaxing attention to the chest, to the stomach and the abdomen, soothing it with this mental, gentle, mental massage. Healing Healing it with this warm attention.
Now bringing to mind the left leg, starting at the top of the left leg and moving our attention down the left leg all around it, right down to the toes with this warm, kind, caring, mental massage. The left leg. And now we can bring to mind the right leg, starting at the top of the right leg, and moving our attention down the right leg, all around it, right down to the toes. This soothing, kind, warm attention. And now we can bring to mind the whole body just sitting here, comfortably, balanced, at ease, relaxed, but alert, aware, in the present moment. And we can bring to mind the intention to recollect the Sangha, the Sangha of monks and nuns, a group of 
dedicated practitioners that's been around for such a long time, over 2,500 years. And we can reflect that they have preserved the teachings of the Buddha, handed them down from generation to generation to us now. And they have done that through the teaching of the, of the, the Buddha's Dhamma, teaching it to generation after generation for their happiness and well-being. So that so many beings, so many people have found the end, complete end of suffering. Sangha has been the fertile ground for many, many enlightened beings, men and women alike. The Sangha, regardless of their background, some very wealthy, coming from very wealthy backgrounds, some from very poor backgrounds, some from being psychologically de deranged, from all sorts of conditions. And it makes it, we can think, it's possible for me to, to follow, to become enlightened, to become awakened. incredible it is to have a group of dedicated practitioners over such a long, long time. making it possible for us to practice here and now so much later 
2,500 years plus, we can still practice, we can still attain awakening. And for those who know or have been inspired by individual Sangha members, monks or nuns, they can bring that person to mind. For those who don't know very many, very many monks or nuns, they can think of famous ones like the Dalai Lama or even Ajahn Brahm. or Matthew Ricard, there's quite a few Bhikkhu Bodhi. And what a blessing they have been to our lives, that we've been able to connect with them, connect to the Dhamma and to our own spiritual growth. And we can get in contact with any feelings that come up when we contemplate like this. Maybe feelings of thanks or inspiration or joy. That there were these there are these dedicated practitioners. That they are supporting our growth, have supported our growth spiritually over thousands of years. Getting in touch with whatever feeling comes up. And we can give this feeling, whatever feeling came up for us, to our minds, like a light that banishes the darkness, removes the darkness of the hindrances, desire, ill will, drowsiness and dullness, restlessness and worry, and doubt, and all the others, fear, anxiety, depression, 
giving our minds, bathing our minds in this feeling that comes from recollecting the Sangha or a spiritual friend. And now we can give that feeling that came up for us to our bodies from head to toe. Maybe it's a feeling of inspiration, gratitude, incredible kindness. Wonderful example. And when we become aware of the breath coming in and coming out, going out, we can give the breath this feeling from recollecting the Sangha, recollecting spiritual friend, giving this warmth of inspiration or thanks or the quality that we associate with them, kindness, compassion. Breathing it in and breathing it out. And we can use a mantra, a meditation word, like wonderful. Breathing it in and breathing out, wonderful. And if the mind wanders off, we can bring up the memory of what what brought up this feeling before. And then give this feeling to the breath. And continue breathing it in and breathing it out to the world.
as we're coming close to the end of the meditation, we can share whatever feeling arose for us from recollecting the Sangha or a spiritual friend, whether it be joy, inspiration, their kindness, their peace, whatever. We can share it with everyone here in this hall this evening and all those online listening to this guided meditation. And we can share these feelings with all those beings around this hall, around wherever we find ourselves online, in ever-widening circles, sharing this warmth of inspiration, of joy at spiritual practitioners, joy that this is possible for us, sharing it with beings in ever-widening circles, human beings, animals, insects, unseen beings, all beings, further and further afield. the whole of Melbourne, all the beings here. And further afield, covering the whole of Australia, and all the beings, those we know, those we don't know. And then covering the whole world and all realms of existence with this feeling of rec that we has arisen from recollecting the Sangha or a spiritual friend.
now we can come back to ourselves and just to reflect for a few moments on how we feel now. Is it different from when we began this meditation? And what feelings arose for us? Recollecting the Sangha or some special spiritual friend? And did it help us stay with the breath? The meditation object? We can reflect what else did we learn from this meditation, what stood out for us? And we can make an aspiration or intention to develop the inspiration, the joy from recollecting spiritual practitioners of the past and the present who are going towards or have attained enlightenment. It's a reminder, it's possible for me, for us. To bring this joy, inspiration, and the potential for awakening, enlightenment, our speech and our actions, so they're kind and caring. And we can anchor this recollection of the Sangha or a special spiritual friend in the heart to be remembered whenever we need to find inspiration and joy in our lives. And now I'll ring the bell three times and you're welcome to come out of meditation on the third ring, if you wish to.
as we wish to, we can slowly open the eyes and move the body. So, now to, if there are any comments, questions, or complaints that people have, and I hope I hope it wasn't too difficult for the person who, for you, <laughs> you get the idea anyway. The principle: bring up joy, happiness. I often do reflection on spiritual friends. And I include, you know, non-Buddhist spiritual friends to any anyone that really we've connected with that's helped us on our journey. So this is, and there's lots of people that have. So any questions, comments, or complaints? I'll bring the microphone to you if you raise your hand, and we might alternate between questions in the room and online questions. So we'll just start with a question here in the room. Thank you, Ajahn. All right, there we are. Good, good. Yeah. To sing? Okay, good. Yeah. Um, thank you very much for the guided meditation. Right. I was just um, curious. I know that probably the intention of um, reflecting upon a spiritual friend was probably positive, but mm. friends, much like I'm imagining that spiritual mm. friends, much like real friends, sometimes yeah. change or sometimes move yeah. away, and those feelings might not be. Good, I guess. So, yeah. how would you? Um, what advice would you give to reflecting on spiritual friends that may have changed or moved moved away, etc., mm. etc.? Et yeah. Yes, I think sometimes uh, um, maybe often with spiritual f friends, it can be that we become more distant to them or we move on. Um, hopefully, if it's a real spiritual friend, they, they should have really good qualities. And this this should be something that uh, um, protects us and inspires us, actually encourages us. So ideally, you know, a spiritual friend will be someone that we can feel safe with, we connect with. And the Buddha mentions quite a few qualities of a, a spiritual friend. You know, that there's someone that's a, a agreeable and attractive, otherwise we don't get close to them in the first place, <laughs> and someone that uh, is, you know, that is uh, esteemed and has respect you know, in the world, and we we esteem and respect as someone that uh, can um, give good advice and someone that uh, can give deep talks on on the really meaningful aspects of experience. We call it deep dhamma, and someone uh, that uh, can also. What do they say? They say. Um, bear with being spoken to, you know, be, being abused or, or, or criticised or whatever, um, and someone that doesn't encourage us to do anything that's unwholesome, that's negative. So that's the ideal spiritual friend, you know, someone that's like that. 
So I think it's okay on our journey that some spiritual friends we're close to and then over time we're not. Because I think on my journey, for instance, you know, I knew uh, Aya Kema, a famous Buddhist nun, but she passed away in 1997. And I always feel grateful for whatever I've received from my spiritual friends, Aya Kema particularly, Ajahn Brahm and... Uh, and um, Bhante Gunaratana, and as I mentioned, Saidu Tejaniya. But we have many spiritual friends, but due to circumstance, we can't be with them all the time. And uh, that was one thing Ayakima said, there is no need. <laughs> We're practicing. And what we really, and this is one, one thing Ajahn Brahms really um, uh, talking about a lot now, is his main role is to inspire us he says most people know enough of the, what to practice. They just need the inspiration. The inspiration, they can do it too. And that's what I think one of the big messages of the Sangha, recollection of the Sangha, is that this whole group of people, men and women, did it. Some of them uh, became fully enlightened or was, uh, attained a stage of enlightenment. This is a possibility for all of us. It's not... Sometimes I think, you know... People can think when they think of the Buddha, yeah, yeah, he was special, <laughs> he became enlightened, but other people can't. And But when you see the recollection of the Sangha and you see what a variety of characters and backgrounds, and as I mentioned, you know, Venerable Patachara, she was a nun, she was really crazy when she met the Buddha because she'd lost her whole family in one day. Um, and then there was Kisa Gotami, another nun, who had uh, a baby who died, and she was in total denial about it and was asking people to heal this baby. And she came to the Buddha and, and asked the Buddha to heal the baby. And the Buddha said, yep, I can do that. Just go to a house, go through the village, and find a house where you can get three mustard seeds from a house where no one's died. <laughs> and this Kisa Gotami, she went around the village, of course, Nowhere. <laughs> she thought three mustard seeds, easy to get. But it wasn't, wasn't easy to find a house where no one had died. And that gave her such a profound teaching on impermanence of this body that uh, she actually became, uh, I think, a stream enterer when she came back to the Buddha, buried the body of the, the baby, and, you know, he gave her a teaching on impermanence change. So it's okay that we you know, um, that we travel on and our, uh, some of our spiritual friends change, you know, for whatever reason. You know, life is like that. We're sort of passing ships. <laughs> but as long as we can really value what we, can, we receive from our spiritual friend, that's useful for us, you know, I think very useful. But usually with a spiritual friend, it should be somebody who's got a good moral quality, good good basis in morality, um, because otherwise it's dangerous. <laughs> dangerous. Because there are plenty of people in the world with charisma, aren't there? There are. And not all of them are necessarily coming from a good place or, or a pure place. So, yeah. So that's a good question about spiritual friends. Yeah. So. Thank you, Ajahn. We have had an online question, oh, but it's yes. not actually related to meditation, so I might just pause and we might come back to it. Um, right. just, you wanted to ask a question as well? 
Thank you, Ajahn. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. Um, my question today is, um, mm -hmm. obviously, so my thoughts going to be like pretty much all over the place. I'll try and try and explain to you as, as best as I can. Mm. Um, mm. How do you personally deal with when you are like sitting down on the couch, uh, on, on the cushion and you're trying to start a meditation session or... Mm -hmm or doing it and the entire fabric of your being is going, oh, I can't meditate. Why am I here? Let's <laughs> jump in the car. Um, why did I even come here? You know, my, my neck's yeah. this, my body's that. Um, all sorts of reasons, physical pain, mental pain, suffering. Yeah. Um, mm. I normally have been listening to like a John Tomato. Oh, yeah. Good. Where he would say, you know, suffering's like this, neck pain's like this, yeah. jumping in the car, going away is like this. Yeah. Um, or like sometimes you tune into the sound of silence, which mm -hmm. sort of calms the mind a bit. So I wanted to know personally, what do you do uh, with yourself mm. when you have those sort of mm. states of mind? Even though after being, mm. you know, my legs, legs going numb for 30 odd minutes, wow. <laughs> uh, I was able to sort of, um, I guess, th there was tranquility. Uh, it's hard to explain. So, yeah, the numbness did go away. Mm. Um, and I, mm. I, I mean, I, I personally feel like if I'm mindful for even just a moment in that one hour, I'm, I'm mm. grateful. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, anyway, so how do you... Yeah, yeah. Um, no, I think it's a good question. And I think, uh, you know, I think it's important that often people, when they first come to meditation, they'll say exactly that, I can't meditate. I just think the whole time. <laughs> and I say to them, wow, that's a really important insight. This is what's happening, actually, most of the time. There is this thinking... And having this expectation that we can sit on the cushion and there won't be any thinking, that it will be completely peaceful and silent, is, is uh, obviously not the case because we see that the, the momentum of the day, the way we're using our minds, using our bodies, that will continue in the meditation. And oftentimes people, when they come to meditate, are really tired <laughs> So they'll drop off, and quite often here we hear <laughs> snoring from the back. And I always say, at least they're somewhat peaceful. They're quite <laughs> people around them mightn't be as peaceful. They shouldn't. They might be disturbed, or you know, think, oh, they shouldn't be snoring or whatever. But nevertheless, they're tired. So the the main ingredient that I bring to meditation, you know, when the mind is restless and it can't settle. Um, is kindness, to be really kind to whatever I'm experiencing. Because when we get into a battle with whatever we're experiencing, you know, there's a lot of thought, and we think, I shouldn't be thinking. And we, we, we say, well, I'll stop thinking. Try it. <laughs> it doesn't happen. <laughs> it usually winds up and make the thinking even more. So it's having this kindness to it. And this kindness can accept whatever we're experiencing now. And realizing the value in that is just being with ourselves. I was talking to people today about Goenka retreats, how tough they are <laughs> for 10 days. You know, for people who have never meditated, doing 10 to 12 hours a day, no walking meditation. And that is really tough because you're with yourself 
all day without your phone, without uh, reading and without any talking. It's in silence. So it's really tough. But the people that, there, there are people that leave, but not that many, but the people that make it to the end, they feel so happy that they did. The last day they do meta meditation, kindness, loving kindness meditation. That helps. <laughs> but they realize, I think people realize what value there is being with themselves for that length of time and seeing the mind go through lots of ups and downs. Usually in the first half of that 10 days, first five days, it's tough because, you know, you just feel like running away. That's just too much because we're so used to not being with ourselves. You know, we're with others, we're talking, we're on the phone, we're on the, uh, we're on the internet, we're emailing, we're messaging, all these things. We are, you know, distracted actually to a large degree. So when we're with ourselves, that is quite a challenge. And it always reminds me of uh, um, Byron Katie, this famous American uh, spiritual teacher. She's very interesting, actually, almost like Buddhism, because she says her, her aim is the end of suffering. But it's not the complete end of suffering. It's the end of suffering from a lot of the thinking we have. And she, she relates that in, she taught in prison, she probably doesn't do it now, and some of these maximum security prisons, and when they closed the doors on the prison cells for the night, they're locked in, she said you can hear screaming of the prisoners. And that's like us. If we're locked in with ourselves, we start screaming mentally. And this is why a Goenka retreat is very valuable. People that come, come through that, come at, to, out of it at the other end, feel I think they've gained such a lot because they've, they've been with themselves for uh, 10 days, seen all the struggles and all the difficulties, and then seen some of the peace and the kindness that comes at the end of it. So yeah, it's... Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. You learn a lot. You learn a lot, and that ability to be with ourselves is quite something. And uh, I mentioned today to somebody that famous experiment in the U.S. A small was only with a small group of students, but they did try to replicate it with a larger group, and they found it was the same. They asked this group of students to just come and sit in a room, ten or fifteen minutes, no phones, no books, just sit there quietly, and you know, contemplating or whatever they were doing. But there was a buzzer on the wall, and if you press the buzzer you got an electric shock. And they asked all the participants, would you pay not to be have a shock like that? And they said, yes, it's really unpleasant. They must have tried it. They said, no, no way we want to do that. And then at the end of this experiment, when all these students had been in the room 10 or 15 minutes, and they had a look at the number of students that actually pressed the button. 75% of the men did it. <laughs> 25% of the women did it. <laughs> and it's just because we, we, one thing we can't stand, and this is a thing that comes up in uh, like a Go Goenka retreat, boredom. We're just bored and we're so used to fidgeting mentally, 
anything, any distraction. You know, so even the pressing, getting an electric shock was better than nothing. So it really shows the human condition that it's very hard for us to be with ourselves. And one of the French philosophers, I think it's, is it Pascal? Pascal. Yeah, no, I was thinking of Pascal. He said, all of humanity's problems stem, stem from the fact that a person can't sit quietly in a room on their own. And that's pretty close to it, actually. <laughs> pretty close to it. So that was really quite an amazing experiment. So thank you for that question. And I think we're almost time to finish off. Yeah. Is there one online one? Thank you, Rajan. Thank you. Thank you. Um, I'm sorry. Apologies to Melika. I just feel that we can't do your question about consciousness leaving the dead body justice in the one minute we have no remaining. no we can we'll do we'll, do, we'll do that yes consciness leaving all the right body. so thank you Ajahn. Mm -hmm. the yeah. question is does the stream of consciousness yeah. leave the body the dead body immediately or does it linger nearby for some time oh right right does, and I'm watching the clock, Ajahn. Yeah, that's right. Yes, it's now nine o'clock exactly. Does it uh, linger or does it leave straight away? First of all, the, the death process is a, is a process, so it takes some time for the body to, um, to leave the body, uh, the mind to leave the body, the consciousness to leave the body. The body is breaking down, no longer supporting consciousness, the mind, and so the mind will move on. Mostly, the mind, yes, the mind will move on to a new rebirth, you could say, but maybe as a hanging around, hanging around, that's quite possible, like a, we often say, like a ghost being. Because of attachment, can't let go. And I think this is a very common experience that people have. They say, Dad died, but I feel so close to him, or Mum died, and I feel like she's here. Is that real? And it's possible that they are, you know, uh, are hanging around. Some beings will go straight on to a new, totally a diff new life. Not, not that many, I would think, because of attachment. But so it's going to be, it's a, it, it depends on how you, you uh, look at it. Um, it's going to be uh, like a, often going to be like a ghost uh, birth. Where, where our attachments will hang around for a while some, until ready to move on. Um, uh, and some beings, of course, perhaps due to the qualities they've developed, will go to a super good rebirth. We say heavenly rebirth. Some beings go to a very bad rebirth because of the qualities in their mind, so negative, so aggressive. So um, that's what I would say. So it's a, it's a process, and it all depends on what we have developed in this life, as well as previous lives, but this life particularly. So thank you for that question about consciousness leaving the body. So thank you for this evening, and it's always uh, wonderful that we can meditate together, very supportive. And for those who would wish or like to, we can just pay respects to the Buddha, Dhamma, and Sangha.